Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Every week, we get a chance to share the love of Jesus through music, art, and biblical teaching, and we're so glad that you're here to be a part of it. Let's get started. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. together. Lord, thank you for our time together. We thank you for your son, Jesus, truly the best Christmas gift we could possibly ever receive. God, I ask that you be with us through the presence of your Holy Spirit and that our affections and thoughts would be directed towards you and all of your goodness today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, yes, all right. It's okay. Patronizing me now is what that was. So anyways, it's so great to see all of you. Somebody asked me earlier if I was ready for Christmas, and I said these words, ready or not. Here we go, right? I feel like we're there three days away. My, my kids are grown now. They're 16 and 17-year-old uh, girls. They're wonderful. And so here's what I'm saying. I'm saying all this to say this. Um, we're going shopping tomorrow. My wife is taking myself and the girls out shopping. We're buying gifts for one another, and we're done. We're not even wrapping them. We're not anything. Is it wrong? I don't know. It, it feels so right to me, man. I'm telling you, Christmas happens tomorrow. We're out. So um, here's what I've been praying for us. And by us, I mean just anyone who might make their way into Renaissance um, during our Christmas series that we're calling Light and Life. It's a three-week series. And I've just been praying that God would come in in whatever way he can um, and that he would interrupt us from our normal Christian tradition. See, everyone has traditions for Christmas, right? And there's this rut we can fall into. And before we know it, the, the celebration of the birth of Christ will come and go, and all we will remember is, you know, Aunt Cindy's noodles again, or um, Grandma Stacy's lemon pie, or whatever it is, and we just fall into the rut of what we do every year. And so I've been praying that God just begin to shift things just a little bit. And already, even my own family is calling me saying, hey, I know we normally get together at two, but we got to get together at four. And I'm like, ooh, it's happening. <laughs> I'm asking for disruption, and here's why. Because I want God to open our eyes to a few things. This whole series has been driven towards that goal, that our eyes would be open to a couple truths. Here's what we studied the first week of our Christmas series, that Jesus, the Son of God, is greater than darkness. He's greater than darkness, that he was with God in the beginning when God said these words, let there be light. And there was light and darkness flees when there's light around. Jesus overcomes darkness. And he didn't just do it some many, many years ago in the beginning of creation, 
Jesus pushes back the darkness even in our lives today, doesn't he? That he takes the chaos, the brokenness, the, the waywardness of our own lives, and he brings us out of that place. Jesus is greater than the darkness. And when we consider his birth in a few days through, through our Christmas celebrations, I want us to remember that. Jesus is greater than the darkness. And in the second week of our series, last week, we talked about this, that Jesus arrives exactly on time. The New Testament tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son Jesus into the world. That Jesus came precisely when God intended him to come. And he was born in Bethlehem. We know the story, laid in a manger. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it was exactly at the right time in history when God sends his son Jesus. And not only some 2,000 years ago, hear me, God comes exactly in the right time through his son Jesus in our lives too. I mean, when you and I with furrowed brow and sweaty brow, we finally give up saying things like this. I'm sick of doing it my way. I'm sick of trying it my way. I'm sick of clawing after things in my way. And exasperated, we finally lift our gaze to only see Jesus standing there saying something like this. Are you finished? <laughs> I'm ready now. I'm here for you now. So God sends his son Jesus at exactly the right time. He interrupted my life some 23 years ago, and I must say my life has never been better. And this week I want to speak of another truth. Again, while I pray for disruptions in your Christmas celebrations, I mean, I don't pray anybody gets harmed or anything. I just, I just want you to break out of the norm of Christmas season that we would study this one thing. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, I want you to hear me when I say this. This is no name or moniker that we as Christians or the church has sort of pasted onto Jesus over the centuries. Jesus, the light of the world, is actually a name that he gave himself. The Gospel of John, John is a friend of Jesus, a disciple, an apprentice. In fact, John reminds us in his story of Jesus' life that Jesus loved him more than anyone else. Above all the other disciples, Jesus loved him the most. Some historians think that John, the youngest disciple, was in fact Jesus' best friend. When Jesus, side note, was laying on the cross about to give his life for the sins of the world, he looks to his friend, John, and his mother, and he says, she will now be your mother. Take care of her. I mean, you don't leave that to just anyone, right? They were close friends. John sits down to pen for us the account of Jesus' life. And when he does so, he records some of the words of Jesus, some of the things that Jesus said himself. Chapter 8 of John's gospel says this. Jesus, speaking to the multitudes here, multitudes here in verse 12, says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, he says, the light of life. He says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He doesn't say, might not walk in darkness. It doesn't say, 50-50 might not, or it depends on what kind of day it is you're having. No, he says, if you follow me, the light of the world, that you will not walk in darkness. This is something that Jesus said. We know that. But for us to fully understand the impact of what this means for us, we have to not only know what he says, we have to know where he was when he said it, and we have to know when specifically he said these words. 
Now, John was a great uh, writer, and he gives us a lot of details about the life of Jesus. And if you were to take John chapter 8 and maybe back up a chapter or two, you'll find the context of these words from Jesus. What we've learned is Jesus is actually standing at the temple in Jerusalem. If you don't know much about the temple in Jerusalem, it was up on a mountain in Jerusalem. Well, it's a big hill, basically. They call it a mountain, whatever, right? We got the Rockies. They got whatever this is. It's up on this hill in Jerusalem. But in their mind, it looked like this. This was the place where heaven descended down and the earth reached up on this hill. And right in that place was where God lived. Right in this place is where God dwelt. And so the Jewish people built the temple there where people from all around the world would come to worship that God. They would pilgrimage there multiple times a year and celebrate there. They would offer sacrifices there. They would bring offerings of money and all kinds of stuff to God at this temple. Jesus was standing in the temple, the place of worship, when he said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's not just that he's standing in the temple in Jerusalem, the most holy place for the Jewish people, but he's saying this in the middle of a celebration, a feast is what they call it. It's this particular feast was one of three that most people would pilgrimage to Jerusalem for. The city would swell in size as people from all around the countryside would come to Jerusalem for these feasts, usually week-long events. This particular feast was called a Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents, whatever this is, all the same thing. But it was pointing to this one thing. It was a reminder of sorts of when God rescued his people, their forefathers, the ancient Israelites, out of slavery. That they were held in bondage under the dictatorship, if you will, of a cruel pharaoh, a cruel king down in Egypt. And God sends Moses, you know the story, and he says, let my people go. And God gets his people out of bondage in Egypt and takes them into the promises or the promised land of God. And while he's leading them, leading them there, he stands, the Old Testament tells us, as a pillar of fire in the night so that the Israelites wouldn't wander, so the Israelites wouldn't get lost, so the Israelites wouldn't be afraid. This pillar of light, now hear me, before electricity, like I don't know what this looks like, but in the dark sky of the wilderness, God's people are encamped, and out of nowhere, this this huge light just appears in the desert. The Old Testament tells us that other nations from far away would see this light and tremble. I mean, wouldn't you? And God's people felt so comforted by this light just exploding into the darkness. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, he says. And he says those words in the temple during the feast of remembering their independence. Picture our 4th of July celebrations, right? They've gathered together to do this thing. And there's this one particular thing historians tell us that the Jewish people used to do at the end of this feast of booths is they had these very large candelabras. And by large, I mean 75 foot tall, gold polished lanterns, if you will, standing outside the courts of the temple. And they would come and light these things at night. Historians tell us that anywhere you were inside Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem proper, you could see the temple glowing in the distance. 
Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He says this in the temple during the Feast of Booths, remembering their independence while they're lighting these huge lights for all the world to see. And Jesus stands in front of them and says, I am the light of the world. Now, all the ears of the listeners would have perked up and said, wait, wait, wait. We know what God has done with the light before. And now this man stands before us saying something like, if you follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. If you follow me, you can have the light of life. John, in his writing of his account of Jesus' life, was a tremendous uh, writer, very creative. And he uses a lot of themes in his story of Jesus. One particular theme is this, light and darkness. So I think he specifically records those words for us because he wants us to understand the difference between darkness and light. There's a story earlier on in John's writings where there's a man named Nicodemus. Many of you have heard of him. A ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, sort of the high priests, the high court of the Jewish people. A very learned and scholared man. And he came to Jesus, John tells us, in the middle of the night. Why is that important to us? Is it possible that Nicodemus, wanting to learn from Jesus, who had by this time already began to gather a lot of people because of all of his miracles and profound sayings, maybe Nicodemus, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus because he wants to learn from him, but he's afraid that his friends will see him during the day. So he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. Is that why he came at night? Maybe, maybe, we don't know. I think John is doing something with a literary device called symbolism where he wants us to see that Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night because Nicodemus, like many of us, is in a place of spiritual darkness. So Nicodemus doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, much like many of us at some point in our lives. And in the darkness of our own lives, he comes to Jesus, the light of the world. What we're learning when Jesus proclaims to be the light of the world and that no one would walk in darkness if they were to follow him is that God wants to open our eyes to the spiritual darkness that we're in. He did so for Nicodemus. In this conversation he has with Nicodemus, he uses these strange words of being born again. Have you ever heard of that? Even Nicodemus' mind was blown. We'll talk about this later, but like he totally didn't understand what Jesus is saying. And for us, sometimes that's true too. We don't fully understand what Jesus is saying. So I need you to hear this. I am the light of the world, he says. And whoever would follow me would not walk in darkness. He's saying, I can pull you out of a place of spiritual darkness and into a place of light. I can pull you out of a place of shame and guilt. If you are a person who sins often and feels some remorse and condemnation from that, Jesus is saying, I can take you out of that place and lead you into a place, hear me, of a clear conscience. can remove all doubt and fear from your life. I am, he says, the light of the world. And if you were to follow me, I can pull you out of this place. Now, I have to say this. I've been a follower of Jesus for over two, two decades now. And, and I, I believe Jesus is pulling me out of sin in my life. But I still sin. Maybe you're in a room going, yeah, man, I still sin too. In fact, I'd like to invite you to see my sin Christmas Eve, I'm going to Walmart just for the heck of it. <laughs> We're going to see what happens. <laughs> right? And if that's not your thing, how about this one? Driving in the left lane on the interstate? 
Say it with me now. The left lane is for passing only. Amen. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord at this point. But no, I still sin, and I know some of you do too. So what does this mean? I am the light of the world, and if you follow me, you don't walk in darkness anymore. Because if he's pulling me out of sin, I'm still sinning. I know, me too. But I don't sin like I used to. I don't have the sins of my youth. There were things that I did that I am ashamed to admit before all of you that I do not do anymore. This process of walking with Jesus is called sanctification, church word alert. It just means this, that God is forever turning over our lives and making us new, changing us. And should we follow Jesus, the light of the world, sin in our life becomes further and further away from us. I am the light of the world, he says, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. We walk out of sin with Jesus. And there's also a practical aspect to this as well. Jesus is saying something like this. Scientists have studied this odd behavior of humanity. I don't know if you know this, but if you were to allow any one of us to walk in a vast area with no thing off in the distance, like in the horizon, no mountain or tree or building, if we were just in a vast desert and, and told to walk in a straight line, did you know all of us will over time begin to walk in one large circle? Scientists have studied this and they don't know exactly why it happens. Some thought maybe because one leg is longer, there's some asymmetry to our gait and over time we just sort of drift, you know, <laughs> and you don't even know you're doing it. But that's not why. That's not why we drift. You can take a blindfold, a blindfold, put it on someone, tell them to walk straight, and they too will walk in a circle. You can put them in darkness. They will walk in a circle. And it's because of this, because without anything to do these little micro-corrections in our straight path, without a building to the side, a tree or a mountain in the distance, we can't correct, and our body plays, our mind plays this weird trick on us, and it begins to auto-correct for us, but it actually pushes us in the wrong direction, and we have no idea it's happening. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and if you were to follow me, you won't walk in darkness. He will actually be a way finder for us. I don't know. I don't know how honest some of you would want to be in the room, but some of us would have to admit that our life looks like just a bunch of series of circles in our life over and over and over again. In fact, we'll get an opportunity in a few days to make this uh, list of lies. We call them New Year's resolutions. <laughs> we'll put them on the fridge or wherever we put them. I have no idea. But we don't keep those things. We try, though. And why is this? Because we know without something to drive towards, without a goal ahead of us, we will drift. Jesus is saying Gather all of your things, your plans, your goals, your purposes, your resolutions. Throw them in a duffel bag if you want and follow me. Follow me and you won't walk in circles in your life. You won't drift aimlessly through this world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And if you were to follow me, you won't walk in darkness. He will remove sin from us and lead us into a place of holiness and righteousness. He will be a way maker or a way finder for us should we follow him and there's another thing that it does for me i was talking with uh, tiffany daniel she's our children's and family director ministries director here at the church and i just popped into her office this week and i asked her this question what does it mean to you when i say uh, this phrase jesus is the light of the world and if you follow him you don't walk in darkness what does that mean to you 
And she says, she's like, she says that Jesus brings to us a, a joy, right, that's deep-seated inside of us, that's outside of our circumstances, that if our circumstances change and we, we lose happiness or whatever, we find ourselves frustrated, but if we follow Jesus, he places inside of us a joy that we can never lose. In fact, the Bible talks about this thing, joy. It's actually a byproduct of having God's spirit in you. That he brings joy to you. So you and I, unfortunately, without Jesus, without following him, what you and I do is we get in this perpetual cycle of chasing emotional feelings, looking, digging for, finding happiness wherever we can get it. And the problem is, is we grow satiated in it. We grow tired in this, and so then we move on to the next new and shiny and brighter thing. Oh, they're not making you happy anymore? Let's get a new one, they say. Oh, that job's not fulfilling you anymore? Let's go find a new one, they say. And you're always trying to find yourself into this emotive state of ecstaticness. <laughs> and it's tiring. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If you were to follow me, you actually don't have to do that. I'll place inside of you something that is not driven by the circumstances. You know, the most crazy thing about that desire to chase happiness is it just makes us so narcissistic. What that means is it, make, it makes it all about you. If they don't serve me, uh. if they don't make me happy, uh. if this doesn't work, uh. and Jesus is like, I don't want you to use people like that. I'll put something inside of you. Joy. Now, Jesus finishes this line. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, he says, the light of life. Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels is talking to his disciples about abundant life or what we call full life. And I think God wants us to have a full life. Would you agree with me? Yes, God wants us to have a full, abundant life. But I don't think that's why John left this, these words of Jesus here. I think John wants us to see another aspect of life here. So if we go a few pages before into John chapter 3, we see that story of Jesus having a conversation with that ruler named Nicodemus. And he's asking questions about being born again and all this stuff. In the middle of all of that, Jesus says these words to him. And this is John chapter 3, verse 16. It's the most famous passage of all the Bible. Have you all heard John 3, 16? Or at least seen the letters that someone's holding up at a football game? Right? You have no idea what this is. <laughs> I remember that as a kid. I'm like, what does that mean? I never looked it up, but I wondered. This is it. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's speaking of himself here. And that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's the point that John's making that there's not just an abundant or full life that God wants for us here and now, and he does, but he is looking for something far greater, something far more eternal. And he wants you to live forever with him. I think John chapter 3, verse 16 is a wonderful verse, but I have to tell you, it's the next verse that will give you hope. It's the very next one. No one ever reads it. Let me read it for you. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So put this in context. Let me read them both for you. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life, yea. And God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's where the hope is. 
So I had the best childhood imaginable. And I say that seriously. I loved my childhood. I look back and think how wonderful it was. Talking to many people that I now know, they didn't have the childhood that I had. I had a very stable home life. I, I came home from the hospital when I was born in the hospital into the same house that I came home to when I graduated from college. And my parents just stayed there, not just them, but all of my neighbors stayed there as well. And so all of those kids that I went to grade school with, middle school, high school, and some even off to college, we remained friends our whole lives. And not only did I have the most close-knit group of friends, I had but a baseball throw distance from my house, a paradise called a creek. Anybody? Or what my grandma called a crick. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And for a group of young boys, there is no more fun than crawdads and minnows. And, and an amount of filth that you could cover yourself in it was staggering, right, in the creek. And it used to frustrate my parents to no end. I was going through shoes and clothes so fast because I would get them ruined every time I would go play in the creek. One time in particular, I don't remember the exact details, but my parents were specific, do not play in the creek today. We have to go somewhere after I get off work, so stay clean, son, is all I'm saying. And guess what I did? You know me well. Yes, I go play in the creek, and I'm in the creek when all of a sudden I hear my dad's voice, Jeffrey? Uh-oh. All right, so whatever, I get up out of the creek and I look down and I'm, I'm covered in mud, right? I'm, I'm in trouble. So I did what every young boy would do, I hid. I sat down, <laughs> hoping my dad would give up, but he didn't. In fact, his voice grew louder and louder, not because he was becoming more frustrated. No, no, no. It's because he was getting closer. <laughs> he, was, he was walking to the creek now to find me. I ducked down in the side of the bank of the creek where water had washed out this little hole for me. Praise the Lord. And I hid myself underneath there and hand on the Bible, my father stood exactly over me. Jeffrey, calling my name. At this point, he's super frustrated. And I'm caught. I have nothing to do. So I just hunkered down and stayed there. Now, eventually my dad left. Eventually, my dad left, and I had to go home. You know the end of this story. I got home, and I received my spankings, which I should have, and I received my groundings, which I should have. But I tell you this story because I think so many people in the world around us picture God that way, that he's somehow walking to the place where we find ourselves in disobedience and covered in dirt and muck and sin, and God is standing over us, calling our name, hoping that we, he might find us so that he could punish us. And that's the picture that you used to have of God, that I used to have of God, that I'm telling you, many of my friends still have of God. They think God, in fact, desires to punish people who sin. But it's actually not true. God will punish sin. He has to. He's just. How just could you be if you let people sin and don't punish them for it? It's like let a judge letting lawbreakers go free. That's not justice. But what Jesus does for us is when God comes to bring punishment to our sin, punishment for our disobedience and waywardness, Jesus stands in front of us 
And he becomes a substitute for us. So when punishment was to come, Jesus takes it upon himself. Now we see this on the cross. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he's dying for the penalty of sin, even though he'd never sinned. His sin, the reason he's dying is because he's taking on our sin and God is punishing him for it. See, God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now this message, Jesus is the light of the world. He wants to save the world. I'm praying would become an important aspect of our Christmas celebrations this year. And unfortunately, so many people forget that aspect, that God does in fact want to save the world. In fact, if I could just share with you as I get ready to close here, um, the Christmas story one more time. You guys know the story. Joseph and Mary had made their way down to Bethlehem because a census was taking place, whatever. They went back down there. And she's pregnant with a child. And there's no place for them in a the hotel, we learned. So they go to this place where the animals live, some stable, if you will. Jesus is born. And they place him in this manger, which sounds so pretty and poetic. It's just a feeding trough. It's a place where the livestock came to eat. And they place Jesus in that, in my mind, so that the animals don't step on him in the middle of the night. That's what I think. Jesus, the Savior of the world, has been born. And no one knows. Nobody knows this story outside of Mary and Joseph. No one knows what had just taken place. And God is desperate for the world to know. And so he comes to tell people. And hear this, he doesn't come to the, to the castles. He doesn't come to where the elite are, the kings and queens of the earth. It says in Luke chapter 2 that an angel of the Lord came to a field in the middle of the night. In the dark of night, an angel from the Lord comes and lands. And I picture that three-point superhero thing when they land. Anyone? Avengers, anyone? For the record, this is about as low as I can get down right now. <laughs> Not much superhero here, is there? <laughs> An angel of the Lord comes, and it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around him. Oh, this light breaks from the darkness in the middle of a field, and there's just a group of shepherds out there, shepherds tending sheep and goats, smelly people living with the animals, hardly coming in town to bathe. The shepherds are struck with fear, great fear. They're terrified. Wouldn't you be an angel and this great ball of light coming out of nowhere? And the angel says, fear not, because I bring you good news of great joy. You see, today a Savior has been born in the city of David, Bethlehem. A Savior has come. Now the issue that we need to point to is this. Is he came to shepherds first. If you don't know your Jewish history, you don't know this. Shepherds were the outcasts of society. They were thought so lowly they could never testify in court. You weren't allowed to buy anything from a shepherd because it would have been assumed to have been stolen from someone else. In the rabbinical teachings of the Mishnah, it says this, that if a Jewish person is to walk down the road and see a large pit and a shepherd had fallen in it, you were allowed to leave them there to die. Anyone else, you'd have to help out so that they might live, but not a shepherd. Why is this? Because they were outcasts. 
They were unlovable. They were literally unsavable. But when God comes to tell the story of his son, where does he go? He goes to those people first. Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. Tonight, a Savior has been born. Now, these... (laughs) These dirty, smelly men get up and run to the stable and see the baby Jesus and see Mary and Joseph there. And they tell them the story of the angels and all this. And all of them are like, oh, freaking out about this. I want to close with that story because I need you to hear, hear me. I think there are people in this room who are living in that place that you think God doesn't want to save you. That you've already done far too great um, bad things or whatever bad language, sorry. But you know what I mean? Like you've done terrible things that God would never want to save you, that you're too far gone, some would think. And that's not true. And some, I think this Christmas season, beyond candy canes and fruitcake and and whatever eggnog is, I have no idea there, that God will interrupt and remind you that he has come to save the world. You too. You and you save me. 23 years ago, I just said these words to God. God, if you're real, because I didn't know. I didn't know. God, if you're real, I'm done. I can't go on anymore. I cannot keep living this way. I will never make it another year. And God came in with Jesus and he changed my life. He walked me out of a place of darkness and into the light, the light of life. And some of you need to reach out to God this Christmas season. There's another group of people in here who are you're already Christians. Praise the Lord. I'm glad for you. But this Christmas season, there, there are people coming to your house. You know the ones I'm talking about. Some of those family members, and you're like, oh, my God, here we go again. God, if it, God could save anyone, he needs to save that one. And honestly, if you can't think of someone, probably you. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's you. But some of us need to remember that God's come for them. They just don't know yet. I promise you, some of these people, they don't want to live the life that they're living They are caught up in all kinds of darkness and sinful behavior and addictions and you name it. And they don't want to live this way. They're desperate to be changed. They just don't know how. But you do. So with your side of noodles and green bean casserole, why don't you serve them something far more eternal? And just tell them about the hope that is in Jesus. Did you know Jesus, this Christmas thing, is the son, he's the son of God and he came into the world not to condemn the world. He doesn't condemn you. He came into the world to save you. Did you know that? I'm telling you, this Christmas season, with all its bumps and hiccups and changes that I'm praying for, it'll produce something in us that we haven't experienced in a long time. pray with me. God, I thank you for everything that you do. I I thank you that I'm such a mess emotionally, Lord. I 
I just feel like you're really doing something unique. And um, God, I pray that you be good to us this holiday season as we gather with friends and family, that we be thankful for the the, the work of salvation that you've brought to many of us here. And I, I thank you, God, that you're going to continue to try to save some of our closest friends and family members. And God, we pray that you would make this Christmas season truly about your son, Jesus. That he is greater than any darkness that we could find ourselves in in our life, that he is always coming at just the right time in our life and that he is the light of the world who would lead us into the light of life. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. Now be with us and as we continue to sing and to declare all of your goodness, as we continue to worship you and thank you for everything you've done. We say these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Renaissance Podcast. I hope that God has spoken to you through this message and that you're encouraged to continue pursuing Him. And I want to encourage you to take the next step in your relationship with God, which might be getting involved with a group of other believers. If you'd like to be a part of what's going on here at Renaissance, then please connect with us on social media or online at renaissancedecatur.org.